listening to the Jelly Donut Podcast. I'm Ryan, your host. Join me as I talk to the best and brightest in finance and economics. We'll go beyond just theory and discuss some of the most important real-world macro questions of our time. What happens next and how does all of this end? Pull up a seat and listen in. We'll talk about it coming up next. Today's show is brought to you by Kova Coffee. Kova is a specialty roaster out of Portland, Oregon, and they specialize in single-origin coffees, and they're committed to long-term, sustainable partnerships with coffee producers. Now, if you're like me, I love coffee. I have to start my day off with at least one or two cups. I make it by hand. I usually use a pour-over. Sometimes I'll break out the Chemex on the weekend, but honestly, it doesn't matter. You could be using a Mr. Coffee. You could be using... Any cheap automatic machine, you might even have something a little fancier. But that doesn't matter. What does matter, first and foremost, is the beans. You have to start out with really high-quality beans, and that's going to pretty much guarantee, no matter how you make your coffee, that you're going to turn out with a really good cup of coffee or espresso, depending on what you like. Now, just say no to the burnt, over-roasted corporate coffee that you find in your grocery store. And I don't even bother with that store brand stuff. So here's what you do. I'm going to make it really easy for you. Just go to kovacoffee.com, that's C-O-A-V-A coffee.com, and use my code JDP10, as in Jelly Donut Podcast 10, 10, and you get $10 off your first purchase. JDP10, and you get $10 off your first purchase at Kova Coffee. Do it right now while you're thinking about it. As soon as you know it, they roast it fresh. And it'll be right on your doorstep for you to enjoy in the morning or whenever you enjoy your coffee. So if you like the show, support Kova Coffee since they support us and you'll be happy you did. Today on the show, we have Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas is a best-selling author, speaker, educator, and one of the world's foremost Bitcoin and open blockchain experts. He's a teaching fellow with the University of Nicosia serves on the Oversight Committee for the Bitcoin Reference Rate at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, and has appeared as an expert witness in hearings around the world, including the Australian Senate Banking Committee and the Canadian Senate Commerce Banking and Finance Committee. Enjoy my conversation with Andreas Antonopoulos. Andreas, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, the first thing I like to start out with guests is talking a little bit about 2008, what you were doing at the time. Take us back to the global financial crisis and what was going on in your life. Uh, 2008, I lived in New York. I was a partner in a research and analysis firm that provided technology research. And I was a public speaker, professional public speaker, and I speak at conferences about information security, data center technologies, cloud computing, things like that. Uh, I remember being at the New York Javits Center speaking at a conference, and during the lunch break, uh, all of the TVs um, are blaring, and everybody is glued to them as they announce that uh, Lehman is bankrupt and the market is crashing hard 
and all hell has broken loose. And I remember everybody just looking up at the TVs, wondering what the hell just happened. Um, and that was it. That was the beginning of that crisis, which of course wasn't my first crisis because I'm Greek and I right. in a country where we've been doing that stuff uh, many times over. So um, not as much of a surprise. Yeah. And let's talk a little bit about that. So Americans obviously don't have a lot of experience with having issues with um, fiat currency and issues with getting money out of the ATM, even though we were literally a weekend away from that happening in 2008. A lot of people still even don't even know that fact. So talk a little bit about your experience in Greece and, and some of the things we've seen in India recently some issues with the cash there. Talk a little bit about that. Um, money is invisible when it's working and becomes absolutely impossible to ignore when it stops working uh, because everything is affected when it stops working. And I grew up uh, experiencing money as something that worked most of the time, but not all of the time, and therefore was never completely invisible. Um, I remember as a child, uh, bank runs. I remember uh, having zeros removed from the end of our currency numbers. Um, I remember inflation and um, currency controls and the inability to get hard currency, um, such as US dollars or British pounds, uh, which were very difficult to acquire when I went to study in college in England, um, left Greece. And I remember these things affecting everybody. Everybody um, understood that there were two prices for currency, the official one, and then the black market rate, which was very different. <laughs> um, and when you're, you know, 15, 16 years old and you uh, understand how a black market works at that age, that's a useful skill uh, and also a useful perspective that um, changes your life fairly dramatically. Um and uh, so, so that was a common experience. And of course, that is the common experience of humanity. That's how money works for the vast majority of people on this planet. Uh, some 6 billion people have that experience of money rather than the incredibly rare um, experience of continuously stable money for decades um, that Americans, North Americans, uh, Western Europeans have of, of money that just is there, works, and you don't have to think about. And of course, that is now very quickly becoming not even the experience of that narrow niche. Because we, we are going to see more and more crises, and we are going to see more and more desperate and radical measures taken to hide the fact that our economic system is incredibly fragile um, and in some ways deeply broken. Yeah. And going back to the global financial crisis, it's been 10 years now and we've had 10 years of Bitcoin and 10 years of 99 point, I'm not sure what it is, 9% uptime. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had really being able to kind of test the system and, and show the robustness through it. There was some talk 
from, I know, Dan held a handful of people writing about why Satoshi might have released Bitcoin during that time. And we've had plenty of precursors, uh, Bitgold, um, which was a, obviously just a paper, not code, Digicash, eCash, all of these type of things. Do you think that the world was finally ready for Bitcoin at that time? And then taking to 10 years later, how do you think... Um, the world is ready for it maybe now after it's been the robustness has been tested. I, I wonder whether um, some of the ideas were almost ready to launch. And then due to the financial crisis, the whole project was accelerated a bit. Um, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if Satoshi was working on the prototype uh, for a, a long time. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then when the crisis started hitting, it became obvious that this was the perfect opportunity to launch this into the world with a meaningful message attached to it. Um, and that's what happens, but we'll never know. Right. Um, exactly. It's, it's impossible to prove Satoshi's uh, identity now and, um, and we'll never know. However, uh, 10 years later, um, is the world ready for uh, Bitcoin? or cryptocurrency in general, or open blockchains in general? Not really. The world isn't. Uh, Some pockets in the world are ready for it. Um, And Bitcoin and open blockchains are not quite ready for the world. Uh, We don't yet have the uh, scale. We don't have the user interfaces. We don't have the um, multilingual education material. Uh, We don't have polished uh, designs. All of these things that we need for this technology to be able to pick up a greater percentage of the world's economy and offer a meaningful alternative in places of crisis. Because right now, if some of these big ships start sinking, Bitcoin as a lifeboat isn't big enough to even take a fraction of the people on board. Um, and, and, And that's really one of the biggest worries I have. Yeah, and you've talked a lot about why open blockchains and open systems are the way to go. And based on some of your previous experience in technology with intranet and intranet, and you can look at AOL and Prodigy and all these examples, talk a little bit about blockchain, not Bitcoin, and and that whole cycle we saw a few years back and still is going on where the banks and and other financial intermediaries feeling maybe threatened and then pivoting to kind of, okay, we can adopt this technology for, you know, quote unquote blockchain, which the word doesn't even have any meaning anymore. Yeah. um, I think there was an attempt to try to uh, smooth off the sharp edges, uh, the disruptive aspects of this technology and not so much adopt as co-opt, um, embrace, extend, extinguish, and create uh, tame alternatives that keep the name and um, some of the symbology of uh, Bitcoin, the open blockchain, and but architecturally allow uh, banks, uh, central banks and governments to continue with business as usual. Bottom line is that this technology is very much about the architecture of power, uh, who controls it, under what circumstances they control it. And the essence of this technology is radical decentralization that is very disruptive. 
that not only uh, is not controlled, but resists control uh, from even powerful, well-funded adversaries because of its decentralized nature. And out of this emerge five or six key characteristics, which I consider the pillars of the open blockchain movement. And these are that the system is open, meaning that anyone can access and participate without Mm -hmm. vetting or authorization. Uh, Borderless, it uh, operates everywhere in the world without any even recognition of national borders or limitations in geography. It is uh, neutral, neutral to sender, recipient, value, and purpose. Uh, It simply routes uh, transactions, uh, regardless of who sent them, where they sent them, and for what purpose and at what amount, uh, just like the early internet. It is uh, resistant to censorship. It is not impossible, but very difficult to censor more than a tiny fraction of the transactions for more than a tiny fraction of the time, uh, which allows anybody the freedom to transact. It is um, immutable in that uh, once a transaction has been recorded, it cannot be reversed uh, in any practical sense. Uh, that gives uh, a lot of power to the system and and many other secondary characteristics. These are the criteria. These are rather the capabilities that emerge from decentralization. Yeah. One of the large consultants, that's a great list. One of the large consultants had a filed a patent for a, um, a blockchain where you could edit. And I, I saw you had some comments on that and it was pretty funny at the time. Actually, it was, it was almost a parody of itself, but. Well, I mean, um, in the desperate attempt to continue business as usual, the overwhelming response to the phenomenon of radical disruption introduced by this uh, decentralized form of, of money and this decentralized machine of trust was to say, okay, I see that you've built something that is open, borderless, neutral, censorship resistant, immutable, um, we would like that only, um, uh, could you please, uh, hold the open borderless, neutral censorship resistant and immutable features. And <laughs> we have something that is closed, censored, controlled, surveilled, geographically restrained and mutable. Um, and of course that will still going to call it a blockchain because you've got some good branding and marketing going on and people think you're doing something really interesting with this technology, but we're going to strip out all of the, uh, decentralized characteristics. Uh, and I coined at the time the phrase, is it blockchain or is it bullshit? Uh, and provided these criteria for determining the difference. Um, it's actually my most popular video on YouTube, blockchain versus bullshit, Bottom line is that these are desperate attempts to continue business as usual with the minimum amount of disruption or change in the power architecture of the world to replace um, the uh, a, a new technology inside the existing architecture of power, to replace a new set of faces at the top with uh, from a different older set of faces at the top, but continue to keep um, the hierarchical um, architecture of power and make sure that the people who are at the top are still at the top, even though they're different people. And, and that's not what this is about. What Bitcoin and other open blockchains that fulfill these decentralized characteristics are about is about flattening the architecture of power, about decentralizing and diffusing concentrations of power, about disintermediating parasitic organizations, about freeing people from the surveillance control and oppression of a system uh, designed 
primarily to be a system of control rather than a system of commerce and giving everybody on an equal um, level playing field the opportunity to have freedom of transaction and privacy, uh, which are fundamental human rights. And so that is a radical proposition. And it's a radical proposition because we now live in a world in which um, some very basic elements of privacy are considered radical. Uh, but um, institutional institutional corruption uh, to the tune of trillions is considered business as usual and and nothing to to even pay attention to. Um, and so that's where we are. This is this is not going to be an easy journey uh, because there are a lot of very very powerful um, interests that are aligned against this ever succeeding. Yeah. And I think when people look at Bitcoin specifically, it can be not only confusing for people, but they make a very rash judgment based on the headline they read or maybe an hour of research or even less than that, 15 or 20 minutes or whatever the case is. And you've told a great story several times about when you found Bitcoin first and you basically maybe kind of dismissed it a little bit, and then oh. all of a sudden you were you were down the rabbit hole, and you you couldn't eat, sleep, uh, or do anything for months at a time. So talk a little bit about that, and why maybe people should take more of an open mind when they're really uh, researching Bitcoin instead of jumping to a conclusion right off the bat. Well, uh, the first time I read about Bitcoin, it was related to some gambling site, and I wasn't interested in gambling, didn't understand what it was, and dismissed it. Second time I read about Bitcoin, sometime in 2012, um, the article that I read had a link to the white paper. Out of curiosity, I clicked on it. I was already primed with a background in computers, distributed systems, information security to understand what the white paper was talking about. It blew my mind, and I fell down the rabbit hole. An experience that many people have shared since uh, and told me that it mirrors their experience of this um, technology. But to say that people should approach this with an open mind is to fundamentally misunderstand people. Um, because as much, mm-hmm. as much as we all want to have an open mind, um, a rational approach to information, um, that's not how human brains work. Um, mm-hmm. We we appeal to authority. We suffer from confirmation bias uh, and other cognitive biases because these are um, heuristic shortcuts that allow us to process an infinitely complex world in ways that that we can function. And so, mm-hmm. I, I don't hope that people approach Bitcoin with an open mind and see the truth and change their view. I only hope that after they hear that it's dead um, half a dozen or a dozen times and then find out and then find out that it's not dead but still alive, they will uh, question the source that told them it was dead. After they hear that it's about uh, drug dealers, pornographers, terrorists, uh, and they meet a hairdresser, a dentist, and a taxi driver who use it, they will question the sources that told them that only criminals want this. Um, after they hear about people using it to fund uh, movements of uh, freedom and revolution and uh, insurgency and brutal dictatorships, um, they will uh, remember that some people told them that only dictators benefit from this, not their people. Uh, and enough of these moments of cognitive dissonance pile up. And hopefully when you need it, you remember these stories and you say, ah, 
okay, maybe that's what it's for. And it's still available for you to use and you can make that choice. That makes a lot of sense. Now, going back to when you found Bitcoin, and obviously what's great about your YouTube videos and all your talks and your content is you bring this kind of polymath approach where you have a background in distributed systems, a, a really deep background in IT, and you bring this economics piece and and the piece about understanding what money is. Did you have to go down that rabbit hole after the fact and research economics and money? Or was that always an interest that you had um, even before you found Bitcoin? It was always an interest that I had. Um, Mm -hmm. I've interested myself in um, economics, finance, uh, and the politics of money since I was a a child. I remember reading... um, you know all of the, the 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 important books of of economics and politics um, as a fourteen and fifteen year old reading Adam Smith and Karl Marx and Ayn Rand and <laughs> every aspect of every one of those and reading Alvin Toffler about futurism and um, and of course a lot of science fiction because uh, I am a geek after all but um, in amongst all of those things and then when I went to college I studied economics um, I was fascinated by that and also as a freelancer and an entrepreneur I lived uh, economics and had to learn um, how to manage my own money um, and you know all of my experiences in childhood so I did have some basis uh, mm-hmm. but of course I continue to read as much as I can uh, all the time. I read uh, one or two books a week on average. And um, and if there's a topic that I don't understand, I start shopping for books um, and try to fill in the gaps in my knowledge. And I just love doing that. So um, I've continued to read about economics and try to develop my knowledge in that. And of course, I'm not an economist and I'm not that good at um economics as I am in technology, for example. Um, but I think my primary skill is in being able to absorb uh, a lot of complex information and then explain it using simple metaphors uh, so that other people can understand all of the connections. Right. And you do such a great job of doing that piece. Now, you, obviously, you travel all over the world giving talks, and I really encourage people to check out your YouTube videos Talk a little bit about some of your travels all over the world. And especially now, you mentioned the economics piece. So on the show, we focus a lot on all of the quantitative easing, the zero and even negative interest rate policy around the world, and some of these really unprecedented economic policies. Talk a little bit about when you're going around the world, some of these protests that are happening, Hong Kong and and different unrests. Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts about just generally what you hear from people in different countries. Yeah, I've I've always loved travel, and um, I I have the incredible fortune and privilege of holding passports that allow me to travel uh, freely. And so I've I've now visited uh, fifty seven countries um, throughout wow. my life, and I continue to add one or two a year. Um, as I expand my travel, I've been a full-time nomad for the past four years, meaning I don't have uh, a, a home. I live out of two suitcases and I move from city to city going forward rather than returning back to a base. And that's allowed me to travel to even more places. Um, 
the world's a huge and varied place and there are so many communities around the world that are uh coming to bitcoin uh other cryptocurrencies open blockchains with radically different perspectives experiences and expectations mm-hmm. and different needs and so it's been a tremendous privilege for me to be able to visit these places and have conversations and try to understand, you know, what brought these people to Bitcoin? What are they looking for in Bitcoin? What answers does it give them? And of course, it's, it's always different. You know, um, one of the early trips I did in early, uh, in uh, 2013 was to Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, I had never been to Argentina before. I knew about its history of economic uh and political crisis and um you know as as a state that gets pushed around by the by the superpowers um and um and when I went there and I saw the uh inflation the black market for currency uh the desperate desire to to find dollars and hard currency in any form um and the attitude of the people it immediately reminded me of my childhood in Greece which i had kind of pushed aside i didn't remember too much about it uh but that brought it home really fast and it mm-hmm. kind of changed my trajectory in bitcoin before that i was very focused on the technology and somewhat focused on the politics and that flipped after argentina i've been back seven times uh wow. specifically to argentina but also throughout south america uh big chunks of southeast asia Um and you know part of my hope is to expand my travels to sub-Saharan Africa as well. Uh, I think these are the places in which explaining bitcoin is not about uh why uh and it's about how. Mm-hmm. No one in Argentina needs to be told why uh you can't trust the government with money, why you can't trust the banks with money, why you can't trust anyone really. Um why um you have to have an exit plan uh a store of value a safe haven uh for when your government not if but when your government loses its shit and goes on some kind of crazy um economic spiral or when your banks uh collapse or when your banks are taken over by organized criminals um because all of those things happen with alarming uh frequency in a lot of south america um a lot of southeast asia basically a lot of the world where most of the people in this world live. The other recent example that has been absolutely terrifying to watch is India, where I visited several times. Mm-hmm. And um and India over the last uh decade has changed very very dramatically. Um with the um with the rise of a very aggressive Hindu nationalist party. uh th- india has gradually transformed from a uh, secular uh democracy into one that is very closely um following the interests of one um one religion and one uh group of people within india and applying inc- increasingly brutal uh totalitarian authoritarian attitudes to everybody else in india and this also translates into using money as a system of control with demonetization which was a very very thinly disguised bailout for the banks and money laundering scheme um that killed thousands of people and uh, created enormous misery and poverty uh just 2 years ago 
and increasingly aggressive measures um, of centralized authoritarian control of the economy, the culture, um, immigration, citizenship, uh, national identity, and all of these things. Uh, it's a terrifying thing to watch in a country of more than a billion people, um, which is uh, you know literally on the verge of a ethno-fascist um, state. Yeah, that's really interesting to be able to have that perspective and actually have boots on the ground and talk to some of these people. And as you mentioned, it's kind of flipped. They already know the the why. It's it's how do you actually get your hands on it with a hardware wallet or download an app or whatever the case is. Sometimes I tell people here in the U.S., uh, if they have kind of no knowledge, just go back and read about the history of when gold was banned here in the U.S., and that's kind of just a great starting point to, to understand everything that followed that. Yeah. And effectively, cryptocurrencies are banned in India today. Uh, they have mm-hmm. some of the already ha- harshest mem- um, harshest measures uh, attempting to eradicate uh, cryptocurrency exchanges and succeeding to the mo- for the most part, pushing it all into a vast um, black market. But they're proposing even more radical measures where uh, buying, selling, owning, holding, uh, or even promoting and talking about cryptocurrency that is not controlled by the government um, carries penalties that are um, heavier penalties than murder or rape. Um, So 15-year sentences. Wow. Um, Very, very radical propositions. And, you know, when your government starts doing things like that about what seems like a fairly innocuous um, uh, technology, uh, you have to wonder what their plans are for the broad money supply. And they've already tipped their hand. They've already showed us exactly what they intend to do. And that's, of course, the moment when you realize that now it's absolutely necessary to have that exit plan. That's what I say when I say some people in this world need crypto. Um, It's not just an idle curiosity, a fad or an investment plan. Uh, It could be a life or death uh, situation. It could be their exit plan. Um, That's what I mean. And we're seeing, unfortunately, more countries um, demonstrating why crypto is needed as a powerful force of independence, self-sovereignty and escape if necessary. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And being able to cross borders with either 12 or 24 words of the mnemonic in your head, as you've talked about in the past, it's it, a technology is like that is almost indistinguishable from magic. Mm-hmm. And um, I recommend people to uh, to check out that video and we'll link it in the show notes. But Andreas, it was really great having you. Why don't you talk a little bit about what you're up to? Obviously, your your books and your talks and anything else uh, that people should know about. Yeah, so almost all of my work is available for free online under uh, very, very wide open um, Creative Commons licenses, including um, I've now published six books. I'm working on the seventh. My most recent book published uh, two weeks ago, The Internet of Money, Volume 3, the third volume of Talks. Uh, collections of talks that explain the why of Bitcoin and open blockchains. I have uh, two technical books published, Mastering Bitcoin Second Edition and Mastering Ethereum. 
Um, and I'm publishing uh, another one about a year from now, uh, Mastering the Lightning Network, uh, my third O'Reilly book. Again, a college-level textbook on how the Lightning Network works. There's more than 450 videos of mine on YouTube, which are translated into 31 languages. Uh, several dozens of each of the videos have, are exist in, in each of the translated languages with subtitles. Uh, and that's all free, open education for everyone. So I'd encourage people to uh, go and check that out. And, um, and if you like the work I'm doing and you want to support my educational mission, um, you can uh, donate to um, my work online um, using cryptocurrency, or you can subscribe with a monthly donation on Patreon and get some early access behind the scenes stuff, some little goodies um, so that I can continue to be neutral and um, uh, able to do open education. Great. Well, thanks, Andreas. And I also encourage everyone to sign up on the website to be able to see where Andreas is going to be next. And I've seen him live and it's uh, kind of a once in a lifetime experience to be able to uh, see it in person, not just the YouTube videos. So Andreas, really appreciate you coming on and thanks a lot. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed the show, we encourage you to tell a friend. You can also support the show for as little as a dollar a month through our Anchor website. Just go to www.jellydonutpodcast.com. If you have feedback, find us on Twitter, at JellyDonutPod, or you can contact us via email at JellyDonutPodcast at ProtonMail.com. As a reminder, all opinions expressed by guests are solely their own and do not reflect the views of their employer or any other affiliated entity. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used as a basis for investment decisions or advice.